David. Yes, yeah, sorry, I'm just eating a lot of popcorn right now. Why? Oh my God, have you seen what's going on in Russia? It's awesome! <laughs> I know. Well, look, there's been a lot of chit-chat on Twitter about what's going on in Russia. I and know, I, most of it was me. I know, and I thought, you know, we've got to dispel a few untruths. And I mm. thought the best way to do that is to bring a guest, someone who absolutely knows what they're talking about when it comes to Russia. They were stationed in Russia. They were a... Com- I'm getting really excited. <laughs> well, how about I just stop talking? We just bring them in. Can you tell me who it is first? No. <laughs> After this. You're listening to I Spy, the military mutiny of Australian intelligence. That's it. I'm driving to Canberra. I'm driving to Canberra. I'm not okay. happy with the way things are being run. Okay. I'm not happy with the way the film industry is being run. Okay. I'm not happy. I'm, I'm just not happy. I'm no. Not, and I'm not happy because i got to drive to Canberra. It's a bit far. It's not the distance, it's Canberra. Yeah. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and I've got a very special guest. I'm super excited. I know because it means I don't have to talk to you. You don't have to talk just to me. I know, which really, really excites me. Now, when we, we thought we were going to talk about Russia, so much happened in between our last ep and oh this my- ep. God, the weekend, I've, I now have a garage full of popcorn that I'm not going to eat because everything ended so quickly. Yes, you went into a deep, deep dive. So I know you did. I know you did. But look, I thought I'd get someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Now, this guest, you know, 28 years at the ABC, yep. five Walkley Awards. Yeah. And, you know, was even stationed in Russia during the fall of communism, Monica Attard. And she's just going to slum it with us. Thanks for joining us, Monica. Oh, I'm not slumming it at all. How are you guys? <laughs> we are good. We're so happy to have you here because it saves me trying to dispel whatever rubbish that my partner would have oh <laughs> thrown at me. Oh, my God. This relationship is going from bad to worse. It's been three years. It's it's, it's toxic at this yeah, point. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. We're going through, wait until it gets to seven years. That's when it gets really ugly. Anyway, Monica, so... You know, a bit happened. So why don't we talk about that? So essentially, last Friday, yeah. Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, decided that he was going to pay a visit on Moscow to sort out the mess that was going on in the Department of Defence. Namely, he wanted to get rid of Shugoi, the Defence Minister. And that name, honestly, I just every t- the first time I heard it, I thought, mm. you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's released a new milk additive. And also Geremasov, who is the basically the the leader of the armed forces and also running the war in Ukraine. Now, Prigozhin, not at all happy with the way the boys are running the war at the moment, Mm -hmm. so decided to put 8,000 troops together and drive on up from Rostov-on-Don to Moscow to sort it out. Now, I'm going to bring Monica in here because there was a lot of chatter, particularly on Twitter, about what was actually going on and whether there was some truth in what was happening because, you know, we all know that stuff that comes out of Russia – Comes with a grain of salt. Could oh, yeah. be a bit of a lie. Could so, Monica, why don't you give us your take on what you think was going on? Because I did kind of catch you jumping into other people's Twitter follows and uh, just kind of correcting what they were saying. Uh, yes, there was so much misinformation. Yes. It was absolutely mm. wild. <laughs> um, so just a couple of things. So basically, look, what seems to have happened is that Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has been at war with the Defence Minister Shoigu and the Military Chief of Staff Garasimov for, you know, more than – probably up to a year at this point in time, complaining that the strategizing of the war, of Russia's war in Ukraine has been all wrong, that Wagner has been deprived of uh, the right equipment and that its troops, his troops are being, you know, kind of maltreated. And it all came to a head about a month ago when the, uh, the Ministry of Defense announced that from the 1st of July, 
all of Wagner's troops would come under the remit of the Ministry of Defence. In other words, they were being absorbed. Now, having said this, you've got to remember that they were already being paid by the Ministry of Defence. It's not like, you know, it wasn't that, but it it was a matter of who would direct them. And so they would come under the direction of the Ministry of Defence. And so, of course, that very much displeased Yevgeny Prigozhin and he decided that he wanted to talk to Putin about it. But Putin wasn't answering his calls, presumably, because he'd already made his decision who he was siding with. He was going to side with his defence minister. And so Prigozhin decided that he would get together a few thousand troops, some 4,000, I believe, and make his way from Donbass in Ukraine, where they were fighting, where they'd been fighting in Bakhmut, and they would make their way to Moscow. So they got across the border, they got into Rostov-on-Don. Now, whether they took Rostov-on-Don, as Twitter seemed to Mm. think, Mm. is another matter altogether. We don't know. But certainly the military brass there were not going to do anything to stop him. Um, Now, that partly is because perhaps nobody in Moscow told them that, hey, you know, you should stop these guys and nobody does anything without being told what to do in the military. It could have been been that and it could have been that they were sympathising. We really don't know the answer to that question. Anyway, they they then kind of continue on from Rostov-on-Don up to Varanezh, which is the next big major port of call upwards, and there's a bit of fighting there. Um, A couple of helicopters are downed, a few Russian soldiers from the Military of Defence are killed. Uh, So then it begins to look very, very, very nasty, and they keep going. Now, of course, the big question that everybody, everybody on Twitter seemed to get terribly excited about Mm. the possibility that this meant that Putin was going to be overthrown because the world hates Putin. But the, the question has to be asked, what the hell did he think he was going to do if he ever even got to Moscow? Like, was he, did he anticipate that he wouldn't find resistance there? Moscow is a heavily, heavily fortified city, one. Two, even if he got past all that fighting, was he going to take his tanks onto Red Square and invite you know, putting down for a cup of tea. Like, it, it was so unclear what was actually going on. Yeah, I mean, I think between both of them, there wasn't a lot of communication, obviously, A, but also what I found interesting is all these people, particularly on Twitter, were kind of going on about how you know, overthrowing Putin and how great that would be. But little do they know that this person is probably worse and and has no communication or, or really doesn't want a lot of communication with the West. But with this kind of toing and froing between the two, what does this mean for Russia moving forward? Because a lot of people were suggesting that it was showing weakness in Putin or was he just kind of not paying attention to it? Look, I think everybody's got a take on this. This is my take. My mm. take is that Putinism, which is his system of maintaining power, is built on these kind of multiple verticals. So you've got uh, you've got the economy and the financial system, you've got the military, and then you've got internal security. Mm. Now, the way he governs is that within each of those verticals, he he patronises, he gives patronage to a number of different players and he keeps them in competition so they're always striving to please him. And he resolves any disputes between between them by either promoting them or demoting them or giving them money or giving them more authority and more power. Now, in this case, he let this one slip. Now, why he did that is a big question, but he didn't resolve the dispute between Prigozhin and Shoigu. And so that meant that 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 just festered until the point where we got to on Saturday, where you've got uh, Prigozhin looking like he was mounting either a coup 
or a mutiny. I actually don't think it was either a mutiny or a coup. What does it mean for Putin? Well, it means he actually has to do his job. If he wants to be an authoritarian leader, he's got to rule like an authoritarian leader. And at the moment, he's not doing that. It's interesting to see the aftermath of this because he really has turned his attention to convincing his own people, the Russians, via a number of public uh, appearances, two of them so far, Mm. and lots and lots of leaks in the media, that really what this is about is treason and that, you know, everything is good, we have your best interests at heart. And you know what? It's actually working because what Russians appear to be thinking at the moment is, and certainly everybody I speak to, is that he saved us from civil war because there most certainly would have been civil war, which is what made me really angry on Saturday Mm. watching the Twitter feed with people, you know, cheering on Prigozhin as though he's a a dove of peace. The guy is a war criminal. Uh, He's he's murdered tens of thousands of people in Ukraine and elsewhere. He's not a nice guy. And, he's, and um, I believe he's in the top 10 most wanted list for the FBI. So that sort of indicates the kind of person he is. The other thing that I find interesting about this is, yes, we were all cheering him on. There's those lovely shots of people taking selfies with him on his way from Rostov-on-Don up to Moscow. But the interesting thing I think about it, and one thing that was brought up by a lot of people was the fact that Putin actually stayed out of it because Putin didn't want to lower himself into that the the argument between the two, mm. that between Shugoy and between Prigozhin. And that's why you had Lukashenko in Belarus basically coming up with a deal to get Prigozhin to stand down. And I'm just wondering, in a sense, people have said it's weakened Putin, but another thing that has come out, another theory that's been floating around is the fact that it was a great chance for Putin to actually clear the gunnels and see who he can trust and who he can't trust in his own military. There is a little bit of that. And, there, and of course, the United States has released some intelligence yesterday, which was which was pasted all, all over the front page of the New York Times, which claimed that one of the most senior, uh, Sir Ravokin, one of the most senior generals in the Russian military was actually aware of what Prigozhin had intended to do and was supportive of it and had, worse still, had, had instructed... The the Russian military of defence personnel all the way up to where he got 200, 200 kilometres out of Moscow to actually wave him through. Now, yeah. that to me just sounds like classic, classic American disinformation. I, I don't believe that for a minute. I think the reason that Putin didn't, he, he, I think it's wrong to say that he wasn't directly involved in the negotiations. I think that he probably was the person who said, you know, send those helicopters in and blast him out of the place, you know, Mm. dig up the highway, make sure he doesn't get very far. And I think that Lukashenko, the Belarusian uh, president, saw an opportunity here to make himself look as though he he and his country, Belarusia, are not kind of vassals of Russia. And he made the call. He saw, I think, that if they had in fact managed to kill Prigozhin, that would have been really bad because Prigozhin, no matter, you know, people in in Russia see Prigozhin as a war criminal and they certainly don't like the war very much, Mm. but they also understand and identify with some of his criticisms. When he talks about corruption in Russia, every Russian is going, yep, that's a problem. That's a problem. So he has a degree of sympathy as a kind of straight talker and somebody who calls it the way it is. And I think if Putin had killed him, that would have been a really, really bad scenario for Russia. And I think Lukashenko identified that and thought, I'm going to stop that. And he did. 
he did stop it. Well, there was that. The, the interesting thing that came out of Putin was the first public appearance he made during the actual mutiny was he was saying this is treachery and everyone will be punished. Yeah. And then there was that very tight turnaround. It was 24 hours and suddenly investigation is over. The FSB investigation into criminality is gone. You know, And he said, you know, I think in that first speech, he said, if you were consciously involved in this mutiny, you will be punished. You will be treated as a criminal. And then within 24 hours, it's flipped. No, all charges dropped, nothing wrong. And you can either go home, you can join the army, or you can go to Belarus with Prigozhin. Now, the interesting thing about that was, as you said, they were already absorbing the Wagner group. And I think Prigozhin also realised that his days were probably numbered as a, guy, as a warlord. He was going to lose his standing army and it was going to be absorbed. And suddenly he's going to be standing there without an army behind him. So I think there was that idea, perhaps for him, he was covering his own ass and he got a deal where he winds up in a hotel in Belarus that has windows that don't open because he doesn't want to be standing next to a window no, anytime soon. No, well, that's what I was going to say. When it comes to Putin, he plays a long game. He, yeah. he, may, he may forgive, kind of, but he won't forget. He's not going to forget. What, what do you think the outcome long term could be? Well, okay, so and so many. you've raised so many issues there, David. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, look, first of all, I don't think that Prigozhin will be alive for that much longer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, there might be some accident, something will happen uh, within three to six months. It won't be it won't be next week. It won't be tomorrow. That's not the way Putin rolls. No. Uh, so he, he will and he never he never ever ever forgets no. forgives Michelle. I mean he does he neither no, forgives I know. or forget. <laughs> I didn't, forgive I didn't, was the wrong word. Forgive was the wrong word, but I know I'm like he kind of is like you can have a few months. <laughs> he, 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 what really, really motivates uh, hatred in Putin is treason. Yeah, treason. He, he, he is really, um, he is really a patriot and a nationalist. There is nothing more important to him than the Russian state and the preservation of the Russian state. And of course, that has tripped him into kind of delusional thinking on one level mm. that the Russian state is under attack from all, all these different sources. But you know how long uh, Lukashenko tolerates and uh, tolerates and what he does with Wagner in Belarus is, I think, the one that that we need to keep an eye on, because you'd have to think that Prigozhin knows his days are numbered, as you say, that he wants to build up a force around him that can protect him personally, yeah. his wealth and his troops. And so he may want to kind of co-opt elements of the Belarusian military in order to help him do that and indeed co-opt Lukashenko. Now, Lukashenko won't do that because Belarusia is kept alive on Russian money, without mm. Russian money. If the Kremlin were to turn the tap off for Belarusia, Belarusia, its economy would, would absolutely collapse. So there's a lot of moving parts in this at the moment. I mean, why he did it, why Lukashenko did it, beyond the kind of very, very short-term thinking of, Jesus makes me look good in the international community, I've staved off um, a civil war in a nuclear armed state, uh, is, you know, anyone's guess. But he... He will be keeping a very, very close eye on what Prigozhin is doing and whether or not he kind of hops into bed with him, metaphorically speaking, and allows him a d degree of leeway or whether he says, no, 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 you sit there and just read Pravda all day, you know, every day because yes. you're not going to be doing anything is anybody's guess. I mean, one of the interesting things that's also come out is a lot of people have said that, that this is just a feint that it was a, a big feint to get Wagner, the Wagner group, into Belarus here so they can make a beeline for Kiev, or Kiev, as we're meant to pronounce it. Now, the thing I find interesting about that is 
that is just got to be the dumbest way to actually have a feint. If you're going to move troops, you don't want to do it in such a very obviously bad way. But, no. but I mean, looking at the Ukra- at Ukraine, what impact is that going to have, do you think, on the actual combat that's going on there now? Look, so I think the, the thing that we need to remember is that the way in which the uh, the MO, the military defence was actually using Wagner was kind of as a as a bit of a rump force. It was there to go in and be super brutal, mm. you know, wipe up problems, clear problems, get them off the slate, which is what exactly what they did in Bakhmut mm. for seven months, and they lost tens of thousands of soldiers. I mean, Wagner started out with about forty thousand soldiers, and best estimates are at the moment are between ten and fifteen that they've got left. So they've lost a lot of troops. You know, I think that really it's been a moral win for the Ukrainians, as in it might have made them feel really good for a little bit. I I think that the, the proof will be in whether or not Putin does something really, really, really radical and drastic and awful in the next two to three weeks. Mm. Certainly what happened did not stop the fighting. There was a massive, there were massive attacks on on major cities across Ukraine on Sunday, on Monday. Uh, more people died on Monday than we've seen in the last month altogether, you know, in, as a whole. So it's not like the Russians are taking their foot off the pedal. They're not going to do that. Uh, but it depends on whether or not he can come up with some new military strategy or some device that can actually make an impact uh, in the next Next few weeks. That's what will. That's what I think the Ukrainians will be looking out for as well. I mean, the Ukrainians are talking, you know, publicly about how the Russian military is in is in disarray now. Well, I think you've got to look at the evidence for that, and I'm not seeing very much evidence for that. Firstly, Russian troops in Ukraine would not have had access to much information about what was going on. No, exactly. So, so the impact on their morale would be quite low, I would have thought. And, you know, their morale was already pretty low in any event. I mean, they, it's not like they want to be there. They don't really want to be there. Mm. So, um, you know, I think the impact is on actual fighting is probably minimal and what happens with strategy in the next two to three weeks is what we really need to keep an eye on. Yeah, so what do you think the end game is here? I mean, you've covered Russia extensively, um, even living there. What do you suppose the end game is for Russia? I mean, there was all we've talked about for years now, well, ever since Ukraine particularly, Putin's kind of what we suppose is his headspace yeah. with a lot of this. But what what do you think it is that is driving him to continue? <laughs> He really, really, really believes a few things. Uh, One, he believes that Russia was dudded by NATO when the Soviet Union collapsed Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. in the years since that it's been, you know, gobbling up nations that Russia would have considered to be uh, quite legitimately within its sphere of influence. And so that was a a breach of trust and that, that means that they you know, they're not to be trusted and that what NATO is all about, driven by Washington, that what they're all about is weakening Russia and making sure that it does, it does, it never rises again. Now, you know, people will debate that one till the cows come home. I personally have a huge amount of sympathy for that argument. I, I can't see the reason for NATO even existing in a post-Soviet environment, but, right. you know, there are people who would argue with me on that one and have. So he that's one of his core beliefs. His second core belief, which is, way more dubious is that Ukraine does not have a right to exist as a sovereign state. Yeah. 
Now, you've had some ridiculous argument. You know, Ukraine had been sovereign for 31 years before, uh, the, you know, 2022, February 24th, 2022, when mm. Russia decided to illegally and brutally invade it. Uh, not an invasion, special military operation. A special military <laughs> operation. So that's a ridiculous argument, but that's what he truly believes. And, you know, there is a kind of degree of patronising attitude in Russia amongst the population towards Ukrainians. Yeah. They call them the Khohol, you know, they... They have they have an attitude towards them as as, the, as though Ukrainians are little Russians. They're yeah. not real Russians, and so you, you know. And the other thing to remember, of course, is that there's barely a Russian family that doesn't have Ukrainian roots, and barely a Ukrainian family that doesn't have Russian roots. Mm. So they're very very much intertwined. So so whilst there is this patronising attitude towards them, there's also a massive degree of identification and sympathy with with Ukrainians because they are family. And so, so I think that's why nobody, first of all, believed that he would ever invade Ukraine. Mm. And having invaded Ukraine, the younger generation will go, well, we don't want any part of this. We don't. We, this is not what we want to do. We don't want to fight the, our uh, Ukrainian brothers yeah. because they are our family. So it has been a really, really, really complex thing. And when Russians hear... Putin denigrating Ukrainians as lesser human beings, which he has done on several occasions, when they hear his propagandistic mouthpieces calling for all Ukrainians to be killed and, you know, Ukrainian children to become Russians, that really, really rankles. But, you know, they're his core beliefs and that's what's driving us. And, Michelle, when you ask what's his end game, mm. his end game is to have Ukraine kind of fold voluntarily back into Russia yes. like it was in the Soviet era. So it becomes a kind of a republic of Russia and that the West understands that it's a no-go place for any NATO uh, or EU behaviour. So obviously that is his end game, but I mean, how does he get there? We have seen that the Ukrainians are not giving up and I don't suppose he expected that Western countries would be as supportive in militarily and, you know, also through their rhetoric and having, you know, foreign visiting prime ministers and presidents. So was that a surprise to him, do you suppose? And how does he get out of this if not by just continuing through with the bloody war? He continues through with a bloody war yeah. and, he, and he waits for the West to tire of it. He's now banking mm. on the West getting tired of funding this war, which it, it is, and yeah. it's costing the world economy a very significant amount of money. Mm -hmm. But it's also costing their economy a lot as well. Yeah, the Russian economy has been remarkably resilient. Really? Yes. It has been remarkably resilient. Definitely. They've lost their energy. I mean, they've, yes. they've lost the energy exports to to Europe, but India has kind of picked up the slack, and I think you'll find China has as well. So a lot right. of what they were selling has moved. They've just shifted markets. Yeah, They've shifted markets. I mean, I think the biggest danger for Russia economically is that it does become a kind of economic vassal of China. Yeah. But if that one sorts itself out, which it may or may not do, then really you'd look at the Russian economy and think, wow, I mean, given the scale of the sanctions, yeah. uh, that it's extraordinary that they've managed to do as well as they have. Although you have to take into account the way they fiddle with the figures. So we, we're not, we don't really have a total view on what the result has been. But in terms of the way people live, when I speak to people in Moscow, you know, everything is working as normal. Inflation has decreased a little bit. So the prices that they were paying, you know, at the beginning of the war, that's all settled down. Yes, the ruble dropped in value as a result of last weekend's behaviour. But prior to that, it was, 
here relatively stable and, and back at normal levels. Restaurants are open, cafes are open, people are going to work, you know, they're tuning out of the war because it makes them depressed and they don't want to hear it anymore. But it, the, one of the biggest long-term problems, I think, for the Russian economy is going to be the number of young Russians who have fled the country, and yeah. a lot have. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very, very significant long-term economic problem. But uh, but for the moment, it seems to be, you know, travelling relatively, relatively okay. Well, let's not forget that Russia, being the size that it is, is fairly self-sufficient. I mean, it's got problems with high-tech chips and you know, mainly it's it's tech that they've got a problem with but when well, it, it comes all, to- but it also doesn't manufacture very much no. so there was a period of time in, in 2014 at the beginning of what, what the ukrainians call the beginning point of this war which is when uh, the moscow appointed president of ukraine was ousted Yanukovych, you know, right, yeah. and then you know ukraine was subjected to a series of you know coups and all sorts of political shenanigans that made it a very unstable place at the beginning of that in that period that 2013 to 2014 period when russia annexed crimea mm. the west imposed quite significant sanctions on the on the russians now i remember i mean i was there 2014 15 16 17 18 19 and 20 and at at that time what used to really crack me up was that um you know you'd walk into a supermarket and rather than have an array of the french and german cheeses and the wines from all over the world and everything else the russians were beginning to make it themselves because that's what putin's response was to the sanctions well they don't want to give us stuff that's fine we make it ourselves we'll do it ourselves i mean it was crap it was not very good, but <laughs> but they did it themselves. And yeah. so he started this kind of this nascent manufacturing base and production base. Same with cars, you know, they updated the old larder and there were all sorts of things that were going on. I remember walking into a hilariously walking into a shoe shop, which I knew to be a Western nine, actually, shoe shop. And I remember walking in thinking, you know, yes, I'll see what they've got here. And every shoe they made was a mimic of Western <laughs> shoes that yeah. made in Russia. Yeah, nine as opposed to Nike. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 the, and that trend has continued. That has, that has continued, but you would be surprised how many Western goods to this day are actually getting into the country via second and third party countries. Yeah. I think Kazakhstan are actually, there, there's been reports of Kazakhstan actually helping get ammunition into the country because it's an independent country but it has an exceptionally porous border i mean the russians aren't going to stop them bringing bullets in or uh but it's the it's their heavier armaments that they've got problems with it's the high-end technology that they've got problems with i'm sure china would be happy to sort of send them over the border but again as you said russia is in that incredible position where suddenly they're becoming the vassal to china which and that's that's also Xi Jinping. You've got to put it down to him. He's really played his cards very well in this game. But the other thing is, uh, I just wanted to step in. You were mentioning the Americans and their influence. There's been, of course, a lot of talk about how the CIA concocted this mutiny. It was all supported by the CIA. And um, interestingly enough, as somebody said, sure, there's very there's high likelihood that the CIA or the the American intelligence community would have known about the rumblings that are going on. They knew what was going on before 
the special military operation occurred. They knew it was going on on the border and they were very vocal about it. However, they were they were very quiet if they did know anything about Prigozhin's plans. They were very quiet about it, which goes to the point, as Napoleon said, never interfere with an enemy when he's making a mistake. But do you think that, like, the American intelligence community would be celebrating what's just happened? Do they think it's probably going to be a coup for them? Or do you think they might be kind of concerned that you might be looking at a lot more brutality coming out of the Russian forces in Ukraine? Well, I think what they would be concerned about is that uh, if there is if there's civil war in Russia, that that's not great for the United States. Mm. The United States does not want civil war in Russia. I don't even believe that they want Russia to break up, which is another, you know, the so-called decolonisation of Russia. Yeah, there's been a lot of that going around lately. There's been a lot of that going around. I don't think that they would see that in America's best best interests either. But, you know, yes, they did actually ac- accurately predict that there would be a an, an invasion. But again, you know, if you see 140,000 Russians Russian troops amassed on mm. the Ukrainian border. Bit of a giveaway. <laughs> Bit of a giveaway. It's a slight giveaway. Although having having said that, most people, most Russia watchers, including myself, did not believe that he would allow those troops to cross the border. You thought it was a bit of sabre rattling? I didn't. Yeah, I thought it was sabre rattling. I thought it was just, it is, this is just piling pressure on Zelensky to do what he wanted him to do. Yeah, and- but having said that, when the United States came out with this, when this theory was being floated on Saturday, Sunday, that the United States was behind this, I don't believe that the United States was behind this. No. Do they, do they, are they kind of pleased? Well, they would be pleased because they would believe that this is destabilising Putin. They would be pleased because they would be thinking that the Russian people will now be wondering whether Putin is as strong as he claims he is. But, uh, you know, whether any of that is true or not, uh, we, we just don't know yet. I mean, we, we are literally watching Russia day by day to see what's going to happen. I'm, I mean, I'd give my right leg to be in Moscow at the moment. Uh, you know, I think it, it'd be such a... <laughs> but aren't you, aren't you on the list? You're on the list, didn't you? Didn't you make the list? Oh, I did, yeah. No, yes. I'm banned. I'm yeah. banned. Um, but, but I remember that. <laughs> It would be a fascinating place to be right now because largely because not to watch or hear or even speak to people in the hierarchy but to see what Russians are saying. Mm. Exactly. That's, I think that it's that level of, you know, is there anger, is there any remaining support, you know, do they think, as I said earlier, everything that I'm getting out of people that I know in Moscow on the ground, they think he saved us from civil war. You know, okay, so maybe, yeah, we don't like him. We don't like what he's done to our media. We don't like what he's done to the way we live. But you know what? He saved us from bloodshed, so maybe he ain't too bad. Yeah, I think that's one of the things. I mean, look, in 24 hours we went from Putin's about to be kicked out by force to the guy who was kicking him out is now headed off to Belarus and is shutting up. I mean, funnily enough, he has appeared on Telegram recently, again talking about uh, how Wagner was treated and also complaining about the way the war is being run. But what most people, when people hear that Prigozhin has been saying, no, the, the, what's going on in the Ukraine is terrible, well, they don't realise that what he's saying is it's terrible because it's not brutal enough. That's exactly right, mm. and that's exactly what I was trying to tell certain people on Twitter yes. on Saturday. No, no, he's not a, a, a dove of peace. The guy has been complaining about the war in Ukraine because 
he thinks it's not brutal enough. He thinks it should be done and dusted, that Ukraine should already have been incorporated or reincorporated incorporated into Russia, and that the reason that they didn't take uh, Kiev in in, in the three days that it was meant to have happened was because they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to strategize. So the guy is not you know, as I said earlier, he ain't no nice guy. He's a no. he's a quite awful individual. Yeah, and and sometimes it's better the devil you know. And it was interesting on Twitter to see everyone kind of change hats from submersible tragedy um, advocate to I know everything about Russia. Yeah. It's um, what was interesting to me as well when all this was kind of going on was kind of the real lack of knowledge that a lot of us in the Western world, not including you, but kind of have about Russia and what's going on and what's the local political climate like because people are kind of saying things and you're just thinking, no, that's not even remotely true. Well, you know, let me just get on to one of my favourite topics. <laughs> why, why, we, why we don't have correspondence in Russia. Yeah, apart from the fact is he, pro- he probably won't let them. Yeah, he, because you broke it. You broke everything, Monica, and now no one can go. <laughs> yeah, you ruined it fault. for everyone. All my fault. <laughs> no, but, but the ABC did have a bureau yeah. and I was a member of that bureau for mm. a long time. Mm. And, you know, it, then it closed it for, for budgetary reasons. And, and, you know, I think that even prior to February 24, 2022, there were a number of people, myself included, saying we thought that that was a mistake. I yeah. still think it's a mistake. I'm, I'm very happy to publicly say so and yes. criticise the ABC for sticking with that decision because it's a wrong decision. Russia is a very important country to the world mm. and you need to have eyes on it. And there is nothing like having eyes that are there day in, day out, who speak the language preferably, who understand the people, mm. you know, people who go, correspondents who go there who don't hate the place but are, don't love it to the point where they can't see what's going on. Yes. Um, and, and that's, I think it's a really, really important thing. Now, the BBC is still there. They didn't get closed down and, and, and shut out. There were a number of organisations who reduced their bureaus, but they're, but most Western media are still there. But the ABC, no, Australia is not. And it's not just the ABC. I mean, commercial media as well. There is a case for having um, Australian eyes on yes. one of the biggest stories in the world. World. And it just grieves me that we don't have that. Yeah, particularly in moments like this, what I have seen, especially from the, you know, the fallout from Ukraine and now this, what I have seen is the real lack of knowledge across commercial media and the ABC when it comes to Russia and what is going on there. And it's quite surprising. Like we we actually, I mean, we like to talk about a yeah, lot of we this talk stuff, about it a lot. but it's nice to talk to someone who actually knows about it because they've yeah. been there and, they, you know, they know the culture. But I do think it's a real sad indictment on, the current state of our media in this country that we don't have anyone with that kind of tacit knowledge, that kind of on the ground, I know what's going on. Uh, Yes, on the ground. I mean, there are a number of very, very good minds that think about Russia. A lot of them have been my my colleagues, my former colleagues at the ABC Mm. who do know what they're talking about. Yes, absolutely. But, but you know, none of us have been there recently because the Bureau has been closed and um, that's, that's the pity. I mean, we just need to have... We need to have Australian eyes on the ground. Otherwise, what happens is that you are subject to the same level of American propaganda mm. as everybody, and that's 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 a real pity. And look, in the same token, we, we it's the same in the intelligence community. We need to have people on the ground in Moscow 
or any target country. We need to have people on the ground simply because despite the fact that cyber is a really big thing and high-tech drone work, all that's the electronic intelligence is a very important part of it. But bottom line is you've got to have eyes on the ground. You've got to have somebody in the room that's actually can analyse the, the people in there. So human intelligence is pretty much in the same state that journalism is in in that you need bodies in the room. I think intelligence-wise we probably have it. Otherwise you're depending on second parties and basically it becomes hearsay and secondhand news and, as you said, you're a victim to their narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is a case that the um, the Western coverage, generally speaking, of the war has been very much seen through Western eyes as opposed to, you know, attempting to understand it through, um, a, you know, via a different perspective. And you do tend to get information that is, you know, that, that suits a particular party. Yeah. You know? mm. yeah. Whereas yeah. You, what you want is the truth. Yes. Now I know I'm conscious of time and I know you probably need to, you're, you're a busy woman, but before we wrap it up, I did want to touch on, cause we did promise our listeners yes. that we talk about this, the Russian embassy business and <laughs> the diplomat who would not leave. I've got to tell you that guy <laughs> that was sitting, living in the demountable in Canberra, <laughs> one, I got to give it to him, all power to you to be out there during a cold snap, but also the, the trainers, the tracky dacks, the puffer jacket, the cigarette and the cup of so coffee. Russian. So Russian. But so on point for FSB, mm. so on point for an intelligence right. officer. I just took one look at him and went, dude, you're made now. You're going to have to leave the right. country as soon as they lose this piece of land. Yeah, yeah. look, I mean, I, I, I think that that, um, that story was just made for television, wasn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. and, he, and he, was trot- he, was, he was parading outside that little tin shed that he was living in and you had, he, he really does deserve an order of linen for having, you know, put up with five very, very cold Canberra nights to... Then again, he's Russian. He should be used to it. Um... Well... You know, who knows? But um, but he still would have been he still would have been bloody cold. Oh, That's yeah, all I yeah, can yeah. say. Now, I just wanted to ask on that. I mean, when they say it was an intelligent security risk, considering you've got the Chinese embassy pretty much right next door to that block of land, how good an argument is that truly? And it, as opposed to it just being the Australian government going, no, you're on the outer, and we want that piece of land back. Well, I think it's a bit of both, really. Mm. I mean, I think it's a bit of all of that. I don't think it's one or the other. You know, I can understand why, it, you know, at the time that they uh, got hold of that land, they got the lease on that land, relations between Australia and Russia were in a very, very different place. Mm. Things change, life happens, wars break out, and um, and suddenly the relationship is no longer what it was. And so, you know, in that sense, I, I totally understand why the Australian government took the decision that it did. I mean, in, in, in amongst all of that is another phenomenon that I think is less comfortable to live with, and that is that anything Russian is bad. Mm, um, I agree. But in, yeah. in, but in the sense, in this sense, the sense of the uh, embassy being there and the security risk that it poses, I totally accept that that would have been a security risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it's... The whole idea of anything Russian is bad. We kind of saw it too. The previous government with China thinking anything Chinese related was bad, and you know they weren't afraid of putting that opinion forward, and that really hurt a lot of our trade because of it. I do think we need to be cautious when we speak about these countries. Oh God, yeah, totally. Yeah, we could be in an adversarial relationship with yeah. them at the moment, but I mean, the interesting thing is we were in an extremely cold relationship with China during the last government. Now that's being thought. Mm. The trade problems are being, you know, the embargoes are being 
eased, all that sort of thing. With Russia, look, at the moment, yeah, they're they're on the outer, but there's nothing to say that in two, three years they're We back welcome in the them fold. back. Guys. We like in. vodka. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> Mm. Well, well, let's see. Who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for all your time. Your insights are amazing. It's brilliant. Lovely to have you on board, Monica. Thank you very, very much. And a pleasure to speak to you both. Yes. Have a great day. So there you have it. Wow. I know. I guess, I mean, I, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm a real fanboy. Yeah. But I, also, I, that, that was the longest period of time I've heard you not speak. I, it was just, really I, nice. Look, it was really <laughs> nice to see them shut up and go, oh, just, you, you just keep talking. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah, amazing. Not to mention, she knows how to pronounce everything to a T. Like, I, the reason why I just let everyone else talk about Russia is I just can't. <laughs> you can't do the voice. No, the voice. You can't do the words. You can't do the words. No, look, that was great. I really yeah. enjoyed that. And, Really good insights because mm. the one thing that she's got is time on the ground. Yeah. And without that, without that experience, without actually, as she said, drinking terrible Russian wine and eating terrible Russian cheese, you really can't get an insight as to what's going on in the Russian mindset. No, and I, I do think, you know, she made up some very valuable points when it comes to not having any kind of media there to kind yeah. of be on the ground and see what's going on. And I do see that as an issue myself from what, how we portray Russia here? I think, I, I think you and I, I spied, have to set up a Moscow bureau. <laughs> I'm in. You and I in Moscow. Um, I don't think they'll have me, to I'm be honest. I'm going to drink so much vodka. You already are. Good point. Good point.